Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Welcome back to Cutting the Distance. Today we're going to jump into elk hunting tactics, techniques. Um, but if you missed part one of this, it's preparing for elk season. That's how do you find a tag? How do you figure out what unit you want to hunt? How do you find elk within that unit? And then things such as equipment that matters, you know, getting boots broken, getting in shape for these Western hunts, uh, what packs may work, how you go about calling biologists and get information that maybe others aren't getting. You know, call the, the property owner, whether it's Forest Service, BLM. Um, that's all in Unit 38. Now we're going to jump into this. Well, we're going to talk about you've now got a spot to hunt. We've now um, got to elk season. We did our scouting, and we're going to jump into how to put the odds in your favor um, as season gets close. We're going to start here like we do every episode of Cutting the Distance, and we're going to jump in to listener questions. Um, this time, I didn't have any come in as we're, as we're kind of quickly going through these two parts. So I'm going to take two questions that I get a, a lot of the live seminars that I do um, and just kind of regurgitate them and kind of roll them into this podcast. So I apologize. We didn't pull any questions. I just decided to take two uh, questions that we, we get quite often. Um, so as we go through here, uh, this episode a little bit later, we're going to talk about specific location bugles. Uh, and one question we always get as I talk about it, um, go into more detail on the location bugle. Um, they want to make sure that they're doing it right. And so in my opinion, and, and I want to preface this whole entire uh, episode with a lot of this comes from my experience, uh, my trial and error out in the field, a lot of what I did to find success. And then some things, to be honest, I I found some of this working by a lot of failures. I've failed more times than I've been successful in the Oakwood. So um, I've learned a lot of this through failures, what works the majority of time the, the time. And then we just kind of run our same program over and over. And so we'll get into that in a little bit, but more about location bugles. Um, and, and I forgot to mention, if you have questions of your own for any future podcasts, whether it's turkey hunting, spring bear hunting, 
elk, white-tailed deer, black-tailed deer, whatever it is, make sure you email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com or you can reach out to us on social media, send us a message, um, get a hold of us anyway, and we'll try to get your questions included. So back to location bugles. In my opinion, this is the bugle I'm going to use the majority of the time. I know I've, I've said it over and over. 90% of the calls I use are probably location bugles because if I haven't spotted elk with my binoculars or have a play, I'm typically walking ridgelines, trail systems, um, off trail, and, and I'm just letting location bugles trying to get that, that elk to answer. So I use this call a lot. And what I want to do is I, I keep a two to three note high-pitched bugle. I'm not adding any growl or any voice to the beginning. I'm, I'm not doing it at the end. It's, it's two to three note, high-pitched bugle. And when I know I'm doing it right, when I get the best responses, is typically when I hit a pitch um, or frequency that's high enough that it rings my own ears through the bugle tube. So you're, you're bugling and it rattles my ears. But what I, what I do to accomplish this is rather than on a, on a normal bugle, you can kind of be somewhat relaxed with your tongue as you start and you, and you, you can you know, gurgle your voice or add some voice inflection. And then you ramp up pressure and you ramp up velocity uh, across the latex. But on this one, you're going to have to start with the latex kind of preloaded. Uh, you're going to have, and, and you're going to have to apply more air right off the bat. So you, you want to kind of skip all of those lower octaves and, and, uh, when we call it, it's it's fairly seamless. But if you can imagine, do, 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 you know, you can walk up that scale. I want to really kind of hit that that last two or three notes on on the high pitch, and that's it. And I want to ring it, and I want to send that thing as loud as I can, and, and ideally ring my own ears. I just seem to get a better response. The other thing I like to do on a location bugle is not overextend it. The purpose of a location bugle is to get a response or be able to hear a response. And a lot of times, some of these bulls may just respond with a, a quick moan or a grunt, or they may respond in the middle of your call and you you miss the high pitch and you kind of get the tail end. So I try to keep this to a, a two to three second bugle maximum. Like you know, it should be effortless. You shouldn't run out of air and, and you're sending it as loud as possible. And really what we're trying to do is just announce your location. I'm going to kind of, in my opinion, let you know what the elk are doing and what I've seen happen multiple times is you're really just trying to say, I'm a bull over here wandering around looking for cows. And what you're asking is, is the real elk to give you a response. It's basically, you know, uh, the elk playing Marco Polo, like I'm here, you're there and, and you know, amongst themselves, it may keep your distance. It may be, you know, we're, we're over here whatever it is, but you're literally just walking along, trying to get something to respond to your location beagle. And that's the purpose of it. And, and uh, we'll go into a more detail once you locate one, what you need to do or, or what your next place should be or the questions you should ask yourself. But that's kind of that location beagle, what it's used for. And we're just doing it every 100, 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards. And, and I'll, I'll dive into this a little bit. When should you let a location beagle? In my opinion, you should beagle Anytime you believe a new elk can now hear you from a location that you bugled. So if, if you walk around a finger ridge and, and it opens up a new little pocket ahead of you, I want to bugle into there from, from the edge of the pocket, from the middle of the pocket, from the back. And what happens a lot of times is you will get, I would say the majority of your bugles are going to be ahead of you. New virgin country that hasn't heard your bugle yet. But what happens a lot of times is you will get maybe one or two more bugle locations down 
and a bull will answer back underneath even closer to where you know you had already beagled and sometimes for one reason or another they don't want to identify themselves when you're close maybe the 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 they couldn't hear because they're down over the edge whatever it may be um it's it's i've had it happen more times than not where i get you know four or five hundred yards further away and i'll finally get a response they're either more comfortable whatever it may be so while i'm not a huge proponent of just unpurposefully bugling as you go through the woods i don't feel a, a location bugle can harm anything either as long as your calls are somewhat decent enough and sound like real elk that are in the area um i will i will bugle um as, as i move down a trail there there's no real harm you know as long as nothing wins you after that you should be fine um so that's kind of that that first question location bugles what i like to sound like and then how i use them and, and what i feel is going on um with the elk and uh the, the second question we have is how do you differentiate between if you're hunting a herd bull versus a satellite bull? And, and a lot of times this question will come later on you know, in my seminar or, or whatever be, because I've explained different tactics. And so they're like, well, how do you know um, whether you're hunting a herd bull or a satellite bull and how should I know what tactics I should go with? So I, it's, it's safer to always bet that you're hunting a herd bull. It, it will be a more conservative approach. You won't do anything that will um, necessarily, you know, mess, mess up is your approach or your setup. Um, a herd bull is going to require you to get close. I feel like even if you know you're, you're hunting a satellite bull, you should still get close. And uh, you know, kind of the, the pun about cutting the distance and the name of the podcast is there's two ways you can hunt. You could do it all with your feet. You could do it all with your calling but what I like to look at, it's a mixed approach. I'd like to cover as much ground with my feet and then use the calling to really just pull them that last little bit. And, and that's what I refer to as I call. But I always assume everything is a herd bull um, unless I've identified it with my eyes or it's given me very good um, your reason to believe it's a, a satellite bull uh, or, or a bull looking for cows. And, and you know, let's say it's a timber, so you can't see. One thing I like to assume it's a satellite bull. If the bull starts to cover ground based on my first call or um, anything that I did, you know, if it's my locator call or if I've cow called and got a location and that bull is actively coming towards me, I'm going to typically assume that that's a, a, uh, a satellite bull. One way to quickly tell if it's a herd bull is if you've beagled and you you've got a beagle and then you have multiple beagles around that i'm going to assume that we now have a herd bull with multiple satellite bulls kind of shadowing the herd um the other thing which is very tough and you've got to have a somewhat trained ear and you're still making uh, somewhat of an assumption is the sound the depth the growl of the beagle that you you get in return you know uh, a herd bull will typically have that guttural sound deeper they've got deep chuckles they've got extra rasp and, and this is just a generality um you know some bulls have surprised us and, and big bulls have called small but one saying i like to use is a small bull typically more times than not doesn't have the ability to sound like a big bull now a big bull can sound like a small bull more often um than, than vice versa so we're trying to take all of this into account and really use the information that you're presented with. You know, is that elk moving? Is that elk holding still? Um, are there other bulls bugling? And try to make an educated guess on what we're dealing with as far as a satellite bull or a herd bull and uh, 
that will affect kind of our play because a lot of times a satellite bull is more willing to go to a cow or travel great distances versus a herd bull seems to be that one that stays in its location. But we'll kind of roll into strategy here a little bit later on in this podcast uh, to kind of go over uh, when you do know what you're dealing with, how I would change my strategy. So once again, you have questions for me or my guests, uh, make sure to email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com or hit us up on social media, send us uh, messages, and we'll do our best to get your questions included. As I mentioned earlier, this is part two of a, a kind of a, an overview of, of elk hunting. The first part, uh, go back, check out episode 37. If you're looking for finding a place to hunt, how to get tags, how to kind of physically prepare for your hunt, um, you know, get your boots in line, get a pack figured out, um, call biologists, look at the, the units and whatnot. Go check out unit 37. Now we're going to assume that you've did all of those things. You've got a unit to hunt. You've got a tag in your hand. You've, you maybe did some scouting. Um, you're going to show up during a, an active hunting season and and we're going to roll into that. So, so welcome to part two. Um, I would call this kind of in hunting season. Let's go figure this thing out. So I'm going to start with maybe you've did some scouting. Maybe you know, you know, boots on the ground scouting, not e-scouting. You know where there were elk. Um, the closer you are to season, the better that data is going to be. Of course, you know, if, if you found elk in, in a certain drainage, you know, alpine feed area, clear cut, whatever area you may be hunting, and you've located elk there and it was a week before season, I'd be very confident going back there and getting on elk, um, you know, during season. Mind you, what pressures in the area? If this is an unpressured area, I'd be 100% confident. If this area now has pressure, those elk aren't going to necessarily leave completely, but they may no longer be where you found them. So keep that in mind. You know, you're scouting no matter what is close to season is going to be better, but you add hunting pressure and it kind of throws a wild card, it, it, everything that's before you and everything you thought you knew. Um, where do those elk end up? And this is another reason I'm going to, I can't reiterate this enough when you're scouting, go find an area that has rubs. That is a, is a very accurate predictor of if there was similar pressure in years past, similar people getting into the same elk where they originally wanted to be versus where they end up during the rut, um, go to those places. If you were able to find them on your, on your scouting trips, it's where those elk are comfortable during the rut. It's where they've got everything they need to get through the rut. So um, go check out those areas and see if those elk may be moved. Now let's roll back. Say you're only able to get boots on the ground a month leading up until season. Um, I've got a lot higher uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doubting that those elk are going to be in that exact spot, um, more so than, than the week before. So now you're now dealing with elk just naturally wanting to move based on, um, you know, the, the feed that's present, um, where they're kind of remigrating to maybe even, you know, a month ahead, you're now dealing with the bull splitting the herds, the bulls going to find the cows and then moving to an area that they want to move to the rut in addition to the pressure on top of that. So um, the, the further away your scouting is from season, the more you need to be willing to move and uh, go go pick up and find um, those elk. So keep that in mind when you show up. So I'm going to start with you. You arrive at the trailhead or you arrive at the road system or the area you want to hunt. One thing that can greatly help 
speed up the process of getting back on elk so you can you can actively hunt them and, and get it figured out is how you break down an area and we we can't talk about this enough is is the fringes these elk just like mule deer like a lot of animals that that we hunt they like to spend a lot of their time on the fringe and when i i consider a fringe is let's say if you're in clear-cut country you have standing timber right next to a a, a logged off area you know four or five year old area and you so you got some green up in the clear cut and you've got timber I would say 200 to 300 yards into each side of that. So 300 yards into the timber, 300 yards out to the clear cut. The same goes for alpine, subalpine breaks, um, avalanche shoots to timber breaks, whatever it may be. If there's vegetation changes as well as terrain changes and that, that vegetation is different, I want to be on those lines 300 yards on each. So, so when I show up to an area um, and I need to figure out where these elk are at very quickly, uh, I reassess the area and maybe I didn't get a chance to be there. Maybe I've only e-scouted it. Does it look like what I thought it looked like um, from from Google Earth or whatever whatever program, Onyx, whatever you're using, does it look the same? And one thing I like to do from Onyx before I go on a hunt is I will go and mark out some fringes that are, are quick to hit from, from the trailhead or from my jump off point. Um, and I'm going to go hit those first. I identify first off. I'll I'll identify passes and major ridge lines. Um, elk, even though they're in great shape, they live in the mountains. They take the, the the path of least resistance. If there's a pass or a dip in a ridge line, I want to mark that and I want to go check that out. So when I show up to a trailhead, I'm not aimlessly wandering through the woods hoping to stumble into elk. I'm going to specific spots, passes and ridges, the edges of avalanche shoots. If there's meadows. Um, scattered out. I want to go check the fringes of the meadows. Um, elk love to be able to, to feed in there at night, um, get get good high quality feed, um, and then they bump back into the timber for bedding. Um, I'm going to go check if there's isolated water. You know, a, a creek in the bottom isn't necessarily a great fringe area or or something. Elk have the ability to get water anywhere out of that drainage, so I sometimes will, that's like I would say of lesser importance. Meadows, um, isolated watering ponds, swamps, wallows, um, ridge lines, and then ideally, I like to jump on a ridge so I can cover. In my opinion, it lets me cover two sides and and double my area. If I'm running a ridge, I can check the passes, the the low points while I'm up there. I can check for for tracks, scat, whatever it may be. And then, as we already mentioned, I, I like to go check out rub areas to see if elk are in there or or uh, around there. Um, so that's how I, I quickly get to an area, um, try to break it down. Um, you, you know, you're looking, once again, tracks, scat, rubs, etc. cetera. Um, ideally, live elk, now that it's hunting season, when I scout, I don't necessarily need to see live elk. I just need some, some um, reassurance that they're in the area. During season, I'm looking for actual signs of elk. Um, and so quickly break down an area. Just because elk were there, a week ago doesn't mean they're going to be there now. Just because they were there last year doesn't mean they're going to be there this year. There are things pressure, um, you know, lead cows dying off, bulls taking cows to different areas, whatever it may be. There may be reasons. So I never assume just because elk were, you know, in an area that they're going to be back there. And I, my job in order to be successful year in and year out is to quickly track these things down, figure out where they want to be at that time uh, and find them. So locating elk, as far as the actual act of locating elk, 
As much as I love to call, as much as I love to hear a bull beagle back, I will take visual location of elk uh, all every day over locating with the bugle. And, and the ways I accomplish that, early morning, midday, um, late evening, if we don't have anything going, we don't have action, I'm going to get on a high vantage point and I'm going to look for where I think elk are going to be feeding or where they're going to be out. You know, if it's morning or, or evening, I'll start to look in more wide open areas. If it's middle of the day, I might be looking in small little um, pinched up avalanche shoots. I might be looking into a burn. I might be looking into real small pockets where, where I'm just looking for elk, you know, signs of elk to show themselves, where they may be getting the last bite of food, where they may be getting out of bed. Um, because a lot of times you can't glass into their bedding areas, but you might be able to catch elk, you know, around a bedding area or, you know, pushed up, you know, steep country. A lot of times those cows love to bed on top of trees, whatever it may be. I'm just middle of the day. I'm glassing different areas than I am morning or night. I'm looking more open, um, high quality, wide open feed, early morning, late in the evening, um, isolated pockets in the middle of the day. Um, one thing I like to do, which sometimes overlooked is plan a little bit. Where's the sun rising? Where's the sun setting? Yeah. You do get some time before the sun's up and a little bit of time after the sun's down, but I try to even uh, you know, orientate myself, uh, so that I've got the sun at my back. I don't want to look into, um, you know, the sun, it, it messes up glassing. It's hard to see. It's hard to, to, to differentiate colors, whatnot. So even on my high vantage points, yeah. First thing in the morning, you probably got half an hour of good glassing in any direction, but then the sun quickly kind of changes that. So I even think about things like that, setting myself up on ridges, looking in certain directions, um, because I don't want to miss that, that morning glass session. Um, so ideally visual, one great way to locate them, uh, locate bugle, which is an audible method. I kind of answered that earlier in the, in the question, but I'm going to go walk a ridgeline. I'm going to locate bugle, just trying to get an answer back. And typically I'll wait a half hour, 45 minutes after daylight. If I can't spot anything, I quickly want to roll into my locating bugle, um, plan that my game because those bulls are more likely to answer earlier in the morning. The, the more you get towards the middle of the day, um, We've all been there. The, the bugling tends to just shut, uh, shut itself down. So the earlier I can get my location bugle going, the, the quicker I can cover ground, um, the, the higher the likelihood of me getting a response back. Um, another way to locate elk, if I'm in an area, I know they're elk, they're sign, there's fresh sign, I can smell them, whatever it is throughout the day. But for some reason or another, they're not locating. Um, night locating is, is something we do. Um, we'll go out, walk a ridge in the middle of the dark. We'll take a nap in the middle of the day if there's some slow time or the wind isn't right, whatever. We may, we may spend an hour or two after dark locating elk. Um, if we don't have anything located that night, we'll get up two hours early and locate elk in the dark. Whatever, it, whatever we need to do to locate elk, I need to be or I want to be on an elk every morning and every evening. Like That's my goal is to at least get a play in, and, and I don't want to sacrifice uh, that prime time in order to, to, to make that happen. So I'm willing to, to stay up late. Uh, I'm willing to get up extra early to make sure we're always an elk. The last way to locate elk is, is still hunting. I would reserve this to very good, you know, a very good, uh, you know, understanding of where those elk are at and only go in and still hunt. If I know they're bedded up in an area, maybe the elk hunt that's getting late in the game and, and this one still, you may screw it up for other people, but it's kind of like your last ditch effort, which I think everybody's going to, you know, do. You're not necessarily saving those elk for anybody else, but still hunting is a high risk, high reward to get in tight. You could potentially push those elk out of their bedding, um, but you, you can still hunt uh, and, and work your way in close, especially 
Um, we've resorted to this at times when there's just not a lot of bugling early in the season. Um, seems to be a way we can we can kind of sneak in and uh, locate elk. So now that you've located elk, what's your next move going to be? And that's kind of the question we need to ask ourselves. We need to be educated hunters, make good decisions, and feel like we've kind of walked ourselves through everything that's going to affect um, our next move. So the first thing I like to ask myself are what are the elk doing and what are their plans if I wasn't to intervene? Um, are are they going from feed to bedding? Are they just milling around? And and does uh, is there a herd bull with multiple satellites, or or is there a, a lopsided balance? Is there like a, a a great herd bull with satellites that are a lot smaller, or is there a herd bull that's maybe barely you know? that much bigger or better or stronger than the satellite bulls uh, around him like that. Some of that stuff's going to lead, lead to it because the competition's different. And, um, you know, are, are they got running activity? Um, we're looking at all of that before we even consider our, our approach. The other thing I do like to, and, and it, you know, hunting public land for elk, you always have to answer this question to, to, to figure out how quick you, you need to, to make these decisions and move is what's the pressure like in the area. Are these elk going to sit here and do what they want to do without being bothered by somebody else before I get there? Or do I need to move quicker? Or sometimes we may spot elk in areas where the the effort or the ability to get there is so great and it's going to take us a long time. We know there's a lot easier ways to get in there from a different road, whatever it may be. We may elect to leave those alone because it, our, our chances of, of becoming successful are so low. Um. So you're you're asking these questions to yourself. What's the wind doing at this time? Uh, let's say it's seven o'clock in the morning. We can almost guarantee the wind's going to be going downhill. Um, but how long is it going to take me to get there? If it's two hours and, and you're going to be over there at nine and you know the sun's hitting that slope, all right. Now as I approach, the wind's going to be potentially going uphill. How does that change my approach? Do I need to walk uh, a finger ridge over or whatever it may be? You, you got to ask yourself these questions the other thing if it's a long stock and and you can't just run there and be there in 15 minutes where are those elk ultimately going to be by time i can get there do you got a good enough read on the direction they're going or can you foresee which patch of timber they're going to go bed in or the flat so i'm trying to figure all of this out without really knowing the answer unless it's elk that you've got patterned or elk that you, you you know you've got a good idea there's only certain spots they can get to um, you're, you're trying to figure all that out before you take off And then ultimately, I'm already trying to figure out a general vicinity of where I'm going to set up when I get there. Um, It's very tough to do. It's taken a lot of time. But if I see an elk, you know, across the way, I know know, it's going to be an hour to get down and across. By that time, I think the elk should be here. My plan, and a lot of times I'll just put a a waypoint on Onyx. Of course, we may need to make changes, but this is where I intend to interact with the elk, you know, my ideal spot. Um, And then I will change from there. And that's one thing. Um, in this, a lot of times when we, if we have to make a stock that's, uh, you know, our approach is, you know, 700, a uh, thousand yards away or 2000 yards away. It's a, it's a long, a long trek. A lot of times things change when you get over there and you might get a little confused on what finger ridge you're on. Um, put an onyx pin where the elk are at, where you think they're going. And then that can help you kind of just plan your route and you don't have to second guess if you're in the right spot or, or if where they're going. Um, and then ultimately, we, we make small little changes as we approach. 
And my goal is to get as close to that bull or his cows as I can without getting busted. Um, ideally, you know, we, we talk, we, we coined the term shock and awe, or we, we use that strategy. Um, once we approach, I try not to make a sound until I'm within a hundred yards. That's ideal. Now, what helps us out in accomplishing that is if that bull continues to bugle on his own as we approach, um, that gives us the confidence, the reassurance. We can track his movement versus if you're if you're making that approach and you don't get a whole lot out of that elk, you're really just having to guess on the speed that they were and the direction they were heading and, and try to make all that work. Um, 95% of the herd bulls will not come into calls from more than 120, 150 yards out. Um, and, and I'll explain that in a little bit, but in my opinion, you need to represent a threat to that bull. These bulls are out there to, you know, breed, recreate, reproduce, and they don't want to potentially lose their opportunity to breed these cows. And so why would they willfully walk away from cows when there are other satellite bulls around to come look for this bull or cow that's calling to him when in nature that bull bugles lets the cows know that that, that bull's in the area and the cow should walk to them. So in order to, we're kind of reversing this a little bit and creating a threat to that bull that I'm within his area. I'm within a certain distance of his cows. I'm now a threat to him and he needs to come protect, you know, what, what he's got, his cows, um, his harem, whatever it may be. So now that we're close, let's say we've did all this successful. We've got the wind in our face. We're doing things right. You need to figure out where to set up. And there's there's a lot of opinions like what's the most important. Like any one piece of this, if you can't locate a bull, then it's the most important because you don't ever get to this stage. If you can't approach and get in the right spot to set up, then you're never going to be in the action. But talking to enough people at shows and listening to hunting stories and scenarios, I feel that setting up is maybe one of the biggest reasons of non-success or people coming up a little bit short than than um, maybe anything else that, that we talk about when it comes to, to calling an elk. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in they got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want land.com isn't just about buying and selling it's about finding a place to hunt fish explore or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets so head over to land.com today 
to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Yeah, and Market House provides everything from grass-fed beef to free-range chicken, Mm. grass-fed lamb, and even wild-caught king crab and seafood. Market House keeps small farm values, trusted sources, and clean mouth-watering food for your family. And like I said, Market House ships all orders overnight. Order today, enjoy tomorrow. And you can even keep the camo on for dinner, even if the filet mignon is on the table. With Market House, it doesn't matter because the cuts and catches come straight to your door. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. And everybody knows how hard it is these days to find high-quality, sustainably sourced meat and seafood at their local grocery store. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. So how do I set up? When I get to an area, another thing that I like to gauge, if we've did everything right and we've got the wind in our face and the elk are or, uh, you know, upwind of us, we should be able to smell elk, right? Elk are a stinky critter. Most of the time as I approach, I almost use their stink, their stench is like a, a indicator that I'm close enough or I'm getting close enough, especially if they're not talking. So that's when I start to look for, for spots to set up. The very first thing I look for is these fringes. We talked about fringes earlier, but now we're looking at it on, on more of a, a micro, uh, you know, kind of in, in the micro scale or, or the micro lens. We want to look for, you know, it might just be groups of trees that are 60 or 70 yards ahead of us. And if that elk gets to that, like, are they willing to stop? Because they should be able to see the cow or the bull, also known as ourselves doing the calling. Can they see that elk from that location and expect for that, that cow or bull to come to them? Or how do we prevent that? We set ourselves up next to that, that break. We set ourselves up next to that terrain break, that vegetation break, so that when, when that elk does get to that holdup spot, we're within shooting distance and we don't run into that, you know, that situation scenario where, and this is what I, I see a lot, you know, a lot of people like to show me their phone on a, you know, somebody had a cell phone running when they were calling an elk and those elk hold up at 60 or 70 yards and they, they you know, bugle a little bit or they hang out, maybe pace a little bit and then they leave. Well, I, I always ask those guys like, do you, what do you think happened there? And, and in my opinion, a lot of times that bull gets to a location where he could see very clearly the cow, the bull that should be calling to him uh, and doesn't see what he likes and will turn around and go back to his cows. Um, or even satellite bulls will do this. They don't see what, you know, they're, they're not going to walk right in um, to an elk that doesn't exist. They will get to a spot where they can see well. Um, they should be able to see the cow or the bull and, and they'll turn away. So I'm looking at terrain and cover. And um, let's try to paint a picture here through words. Let's say you have a, st- uh, a hillside that's 45 degrees up, fairly steep the whole way up. And there's, there's one little bench in the middle of it. Well, let's say you're calling the bull uphill 
and he's coming up the hill, but you that bench is 100, 100 yards wide. And you are a little hesitant because you don't want to be right at the edge. But So you set up way at the, the back edge of it. So you're now 100 yards from where that elk will be because you like the spot and you got good shooting lanes or something. But I'm here to tell you when that bull gets to that break where it goes flat to 45 degrees and steps up there, a lot of times you only get a view of his head or you know maybe half of his body length because he can now see that entire flat or, or most of that flat. You're now 100 yards away, right? Why wouldn't we have set up 20 to 30 yards away? He's going to hang up at that same spot, whether you're calling from 20 to 30 yards away from the edge, or if you're calling from 80 to 100 yards away from that edge. So we need to think about things like that, as well as how the vegetation, um, the, the ideal setup is when you can kind of combine that vegetation break with terrain breaks, but either one of these will work kind of individually on their own um, terrain breaks. Like I, I love nothing more than setting up, I've got good shooting lanes, let's say 20 to 30 yards in the clean, but that bull's coming out of a giant brush pile. He can't see, he can't really be visible. You know, there's bits and pieces. I can see the elk coming, but he can never truly see out of the brush or the timber or whatever it may be. He's got to get to that edge in order to identify the elk or or the bull or the cow, whatever it may be, whatever calling style you use. He needs to get to there in order to see. And then ideally, if I've set up right, I've now got a very good shot when he, when he gets there. The next thing I'm looking at, let's say we've we've picked an ideal spot. Where is that bull most likely to come in? Um, we're looking at trail systems, openings in trees. You know, they I don't want to sound like Captain Obvious here, but the bull can't walk through trees. He doesn't really want to walk right through the limbs of those trees. You know, if there's small gaps and openings, you know, they're gonna walk typically like we do. They're gonna try to find the path of least resistance to get there. So I'm now looking. Um, where's that bull going to approach? Which direction will he come in from? As a right-handed shooter, once I've identified those, I will typically put my left shoulder towards where I think he's going to come from. And if I need to be, give myself a little bit of margin of error, um, I, you know, as a right-handed shooter, I can swing, you know, 90, 120 degrees to my left. If I try to draw my bow and swing much to the right, I'm limited by maybe 15 to 20 degrees before my, you know, my my shot and my form falls apart. Um, so I'm looking for that. I'm putting my left shoulder towards it. And one thing, you know, there are times, so I, I want to point this out where I will set up on my knees. If I've got lots of, uh, if I'm in an area where trees allow shots to happen underneath of their bottom branches, or if they're dead or, you know, things, if branches and trees, if, if my shot dictates lower shooting to be a lot more um, probable than getting a shot if I'm standing up. But I ideally, if if I don't believe it changes my shot opportunity, I will typically stand up. It gives me more freedom to move. I can grab sticks and beat trees, whatever it may be. We'll get into tactics here in a little bit. I prefer to stand up. Um, knees limits me. Um, a lot of times my feet go dead, my feet go to, you know, whatever it might be, my legs go numb, go to sleep, whatever it may be. And, and it's a lot of times it's uncomfortable and, and I'm a lot more comfortable when I can stand. Um, can I move in this position without making noise or moving brush? Um, avoid, if possible, setting up in the middle of a brush pile. A lot of times people don't think about having you know 20 inches of arrow, 25 inches of arrow hanging out in front of their bow or their stabilizer. Um, or if a bull doesn't come in exactly where they, they want, it's, it's very tough to, to make movements. Um, so I typically will set up in front of a large tree, in front of a pile of brush, and let, let that break up my outline. Um, and and, uh, you know, 
don't don't set up in the middle of a brush pile. I, I made some errors very early on, and and I've had great success just trying to blend in on the side of a tree, in front of a tree, um, in front of brush. So the last thing setting up, you've got there. The wind should be correct. Um, oh, one thing I do want to mention is I prefer to call bulls on on contour or slightly downhill. I believe elk like to feel like they've got gravity on their side. A bull that may be getting in a confrontation would rather come downhill, if not on contour, which also gives you the ability to to deal with some maybe some swirling winds. It's, it's a little bit of a conservative play. And then um, I the, the the last way, but sometimes situations don't allow anything different is to call a bull uphill. But um, if I have my preference, that's where I like to set up um, to, to call a bull slightly downhill or on contour. Now we now we're dealing with the wind. Um, if you set up with the wind perfect, so let's say the wind's hitting you directly in the nose, that's ideally a perfect wind setup. That gives you the most, the highest you know factor of being conservative. That bull can now approach you know swing way to the left, swing way to the right, and you've still got good wind um, in your favor. But what I've found, especially doing a lot of solo calling or even calling for buddies, is is if that bull comes straight on, you're left with the frontal shot or you're left with that bull becoming a little bit nervous and turning broadside. He doesn't typically turn broadside on his own when you've got the wind too perfect. So let's use that wind to our advantage and use it kind of as a steering wheel, um, kind of a, a half moon wind approach. So if I can now get that wind not being on my nose, but let's say that wind's hitting my right cheek at a 45, even up to a 90 degree angle, 45 hit my right cheek or even my right ear. So that wind's hitting me in, on the right side. I can almost with, with very good probability now dictate or guess that that bull's now going to swing to my left or the left of the caller's position. So you can see how we can start to use that to our own advantage where we call and maybe move up to our left if we're not going to make any more calling or if we're calling for a, a buddy or a hunting partner, I would want to be down to the right so that when that bull does start to half circle me and start to try to get the wind on me, I pull him right into the shooter. Um, so this allows the, us to use the wind almost as a steering wheel and put some, some unknowns um, into a bucket of knowns as, as, we're, as we're calling this bull in. And so as you set up, start to think about that. If that bull does start to circle my position, a lot of times from 60, 70, 100 yards out, what does this new approach now look like? Do I have shooting lanes as he comes in on my left um, or vice versa if, you, if the wind's opposite coming in on my right? Um, think about that, be an educated hunter and uh, use that to your advantage um, as you go to set up. So earlier we talked about if we're dealing with a herd bull, Versus a satellite bull. Now that we're set up, what's our what are we going to call? Uh, what's our what's our first call going to be? And one thing that I want to I want to start with right out and even preface this whole conversation. This is where we get into like individual tactics and techniques. And there's there's a lot of ways to do it. You've got guys out there that believe they understand elk language, do a T, and they can communicate with elk like they're having a conversation. Some of those guys kill elk pretty routinely. There are guys like myself that call more on a prescriptive, more of an attitude-based calling, and I, I find it to be very successful, and, and a high percentage of, of elk that we get to run the system on, we routinely call elk. And there's other guys out there, you know, my buddy Brian Barney, um, Ryan Lamper, some of these guys that don't, they do call. Well, Ryan calls, Brian doesn't, but guys that don't call as much, but maybe use raking of trees and brush 
in in combination with maybe a little bit less calling, they're also notching tags. So I want to preface this. This is the way I love to do it. And I want to I want to give a little bit of why. So when you, and I'm not saying it, it's not as accomplished, it's maybe even more accomplished, but when you kill an elk that you've snuck in on, you didn't get to play that chess match of me calling and, and interacting with the elk. Now, it might be cool in its own sense that you you know, were able to get that close without being heard, smell, seen, and still make a perfect shot. I'm out there, f- f- the main reason is to interact with these elk. I love nothing more than getting a bull, you know, super pissed off, Eyes rolled back in his head, slobbering, you know, peeing all over himself, just so pissed off at me. And when he kind of turns that corner or pushes through some brush, his eyes are rolled back in his head and he hits me with that bugle from 30 or 40 yards away. That is the exact reason all bottled up into about 10 seconds that I'm out there and why I love to archery elk hunt in the rut so much. I'm out there for that experience. Yeah, I could do it a bunch of different ways, but that's what I want. And, and that's why we're out there. Um, so we call and we play off of their temperament. It's more of a, I do this, he reacts this way. Now I'm going to do this and I'm going to turn the temperature up on him. And it, and it, it, it works very, very well. Um, one other thing I want to talk about before we get into actual calling tactics is don't get hung up on being the absolute best caller. Yes, it can help you gain volume. It can help you sound more realistic. It can help you mimic elk, but all elk sound different. And there's been a few times where real elk have really kind of um, got me or, or confused me a little bit. I was ready to bounce out of a situation because I didn't want to feel like I was being called in by somebody or giving them any of my energy or effort. And, um, you know, sure as heck those elk came right in what I thought was a human. Um, so, so you don't have to be the best elk caller ever. So let's say we know we're on a herd bull. We've confirmed it. We can see cows. We can see herd bulls. He's, he's doing herd bull things, rounding up. What I like to do is, is get close. We mentioned earlier, I want to be within 100 yards. I, I always make sure before I call, especially in these close, close um, quarters, you want to make sure you've got your arrow knocked and you've got your release either on your bow or hooked up before you start making calls. Um, sometimes this has happened very fast where elk, for one reason or another, come in very quickly, very aggressively, and um, or happened very often that at the time you set up, you couldn't see the bull, but maybe they're heading your direction. And within a second or two, he's now got a wide open, he's got you pegged. He knows where you're at and his eyeballs are on you or other cows are on you. Eyeball. So you may not be able to get a chance to move after that. So um, always be ready to shoot. So I like to paint the scene that this bull, I mean, he's got a lot of work, right? He's got a lot of times multiple cows, you know, smaller herds, I'd say three, four, five, you know, some of the bigger herds, some of these bulls are trying to run 30, 40 cows at once. And it becomes a, a full-time job, especially when you've got satellite bulls harassing them or um, kind of pestering him. He's got a lot of work surrounding his cows. So to paint this scene, I want to basically be a cow on the edge of his herd. And I'm going to use some, some estrusy calls, some more wines, you know, so your, your typical cow call, just a mew. An estrus wine is more up and down. So what I'm trying to let him do right off the bat is that there's a cow on the edge of your herd that you no longer have in your eyesight. You have control over. And then very quickly after that, I'm going to let a challenge bugle. Basically, I'm saying you have a cow on the edge of your herd that needs some attention, but there's this new bull that's now right there on top of her. 
Um, and a lot of times why they're trying to, we, we've set up this, you know, fight or flight type mentality during the rut. A lot of times you can take advantage of that because that bull doesn't want to leave the opportunity to breed that cow, uh, procreate and whatnot. And, and I like to use the analogy of what we're doing is, is let's say I'm in, I'm in a restaurant, me and my wife are, are eating in the back booth of a, of a restaurant and, and why we get so close. And it's kind of this shock and awe approach. If a guy walks in the front door of the restaurant and yells my name and, and some profanities or whatever he's going to yell at and basically say, I'm going to take your wife, uh, you know, whatever you tick me off, whatever it may be. I've got the opportunity when you're that far away to just walk out the back door, maybe, maybe deflect, maybe get away from the situation. This is a lot of times the, the biggest error hunters make is they call their way into a setup and that bull is not interested in losing his cows as a bull approaches. So we want to be very, very quiet. And, and so by painting this scene, he's got a cow that's in need. And all of a sudden this bull hammers, he's made his, he's, you know, been able to approach silently. And all of a sudden he's there. A lot of times this is enough to turn that bull's temperature up very, very quickly. And a lot of times that's been the only two calls I've had to make. You can start to hear brush break. You can start to hear approaches. Um, and a lot of times that's all we need. If we've got close enough, there are times where you get in a little bit of a battle where, um, you need to pull that bull off of the herd, or you may need to, to follow them. And so if we get into too much calling, I ideally want that bull to make the next call after I've made those two. If he does, I mimic him or I walk right on top of his bugle. So I, I typically have my bugle handy. As soon as he bugles, I'm right back on top of him and I don't let him ever quote unquote, you know, kind of finish his, his, what he wants to say. I'm always walking on top of him. I'm always mimicking what he has to say. And I'm trying to turn that temperature dial up, you know, turn his thermostat, make it higher and higher. So he's getting frustrated, more angry. Um, and, and, um, ideally he will continue to call and I will walk on top of him. I don't necessarily want to control the conversation by me, by me talking, but if I need to, if 45 seconds to a minute, minute and a half has gone by and I haven't heard elk moving, I haven't heard other beagles. I haven't heard, um, other cow sounds. I will kind of see what, what we need to do. And, and during this, if this is where mimicry comes in, if, if this bull's screaming, I will scream back out of him. If he's got a guttural grunt with some chuckles i will do the same thing and i'll try to and i'll kind of roll with that through the next uh through the next call and, and the next call and, and try to amplify that and really just get him uh more upset more upset and and one thing we a lot of times there are multiple setups in in order to get a bull to turn you know so sometimes it works on the first try sometimes we need to move 60 70 yards closer or that bull will semi round up his cows and take them in the opposite direction. As long as we've got the wind, right, we will move 60, 70 yards, um, vegetation and terrain allowing and reset up. Um, so really we're, we're just trying to, to gauge him. And if, if I get that little bit of time between the estrus cow call and let's say the, the, the bugle, uh, the challenge bugle that I'm kind of throwing the whole kitchen sink at him. If that bull hammers my cow call, I may just stay with that. Um, and, and this and this is herd bull tactics only is is being very aggressive with the bugle. We'll now kind of go into the satellite bull. If I know I'm dealing with the satellite bull, I will go to lots of heavy, sexy cow calling. Um, there's no need to necessarily use a bugle in this situation. Um, if he's responding to cow calls, I'm going to stay with him. Um, if I feel like I'm losing him, I may throw in like a little moan bugle to let him know like an immature bull's got some cows down here. 
um, but never really just blast them with a herd bull sound because these bulls have established a pecking order. They kind of know based on bugle what's what. And so we'll typically throw lots of sexy cow calling at them. And we've been able to call elk in and burns where we've been able to watch as we throw more cow calls at them, the faster that bull will move through. So we've got enough. You almost can't cow call enough. Um, you stop cow calling, he'll slow down, you, you pick it up and that bull will approach um, faster. But with this said, I, I basically said there's these prescriptive cookie cutter approaches, but I know as soon as I go out in the field, I'm never just doing these. These are kind of the standard that we build off of. Let's say I'm walking along a trail and I get a whiff of elk coming up the hill and there's a nice little pocket or a bench down there. I may elect to just cow call a, a mew, not even an estrus wine, nothing, just a meow. If I get a bull to answer that and I move Let's say I can't move far, but I go 80 yards further down the hill and the bull answers that. I don't even need to know if it's a herd bull or a satellite bull at that. If he's being responsive and seems like he's approaching to a cow call, I would be, you know, it would be kind of a stupid play for me to change to one of my scenes or one of my, my uh, prescriptions that I typically call in. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and stick with that cow mew until it doesn't work or until that bull doesn't get there. And then maybe you know, escalate it to a, a uh, estrus wine or whatever it may be, but use what works out there. People get too hung up on doing things a specific or a certain way, or, Hey, I read this on the internet that I need to do this, or it worked that one time. Um, I think one of the, the things that makes you a good elk hunter or somebody that finds success more times than not is the ability to quickly reduce what the situation is and what you need to do as far as sounds you need to make. There are certain situations where I'm just like, this dang elk doesn't care what I say to him. He's only bugling every five or 10 minutes on his own. If that's the case, like I need to shut up. I need to be more aggressive. I need to use more spot and stock techniques. I need to get in close and then maybe call when I get closer. And then if it doesn't work then, then you may need to finish it off with spot and stock. So it's just being an educated hunter that kind of knows what to do. And so I've kind of got like the, you know, the steal a cow scene where there's a, that cow on the edge of the herd, a new bull shows up. He's there to take care, care of, and, and, you know, breed that cow. And then a satellite bull, lots of sexy cow, but really just do what's working. The other thing I like to take into account is what's going on out in the elk woods without us intervening. Are these elk super talkative? Does this bull have a lot of satellites around like those herd dynamics of the area and the time and, and the percent of cows that are currently in estrus, all of that plays into how talkative the elk are going to be, what my responses should be. And, and so I like to just let the, the situation, the information I know kind of call my next move. Um, it, even though we're pretty prescriptive and, and I need to be able to adjust to what's happening in front of me right now. Um, and, and a lot of times we get asked solo versus partner strategy. I mentioned you know, we use the wind a little bit different. A lot of times we can throw throw those callers up in front, but this isn't like some of the old uh, truth videos I got to watch growing up. You know, public land elk, you can't typically set that caller 100 yards back because you've now just disrupted that that threat bubble or that that elk's ability to walk away from his cows that are his for sure thing to come find this uh, new cow that showed up that that's not coming his direction. So um, when we, when we do partner strategies, our partners typically in our hip pocket. And the other reason I like to do that is a lot of times a shooter's got a better, 
you know, he's got better optics uh, of the situation and how it's playing out and what the bowl's doing. Um, and, and we can relay, we can give hand signs back to our caller. Um, hey, maybe you do need to fade back because he's now hung up at 70 yards. Like we didn't make a good enough decision on his hang up point or like, man, this thing's just tearing up brush every time you hit a bugle, like bugle a little bit more or more um, frequently versus stay away from cow calls, whatever it may be, we can at least communicate. Um, and one other thing I like to add to the calling natural sounds is brush breaking. Um, I always, always set up with a tree branch that's you know two, two and a half, three inches in diameter next to me. And ideally, if the if the spot allows it, I want to be next to a tree with with dry bark or broken, you know, dried out limbs that I can just beat the heck out of and create that that uh, imitation. Because a lot of bulls, as we call them in, especially on what I would say your your longer call ins that that take a little more time to develop, that bull will typically find a tree somewhere between you and him to rake and kind of show off his dominance and, and get his horn, you know, put his scent down on that tree, whatever it may be establishing his area. Um, we like to mimic that. And, and uh, if you can beat the heck out of a tree, it just adds to the realism of the situation that, yeah, there's a bull bugling, but he's also raking and it kind of um, puts all that together. Um, so that's really, I mean, as much as I would like to say calling is a, it is very important to my success and getting the game started as far as how you call elk in, I feel your setup and your approach are so much more, um, so much more important to, to the, the outcome and your success than the actual calling. Um, and, and it's really just taking their temperature. Does this call work? Yes or no. And, and I guess I should say I, in certain situations, there's level of threats, right? Like a big challenge beagle, like, right in the bull's face is probably the highest level of threat you can throw at him right out of the gate versus a calf or a cow mew, very non-threatening, very just elk communicating to each other versus like, Hey, let's maybe do a spike squeal or, or an immature bull bugle. And then you may be a squeal and then maybe some moans and maybe some chuckles. Like there are ways to build up to the full blown, um, you know, challenge bugle that you're going to throw at him. And so there are times where, if, if the rut doesn't seem to be just going crazy and maybe the challenge beagle isn't the right thing, I might, I might just start at a lower threat level and then slowly build. Um, so that's kind of my strategy. Uh, I highly recommend to everybody like go find a, a strategy, a system that you like and, and put it to use, but that that's going to kind of wrap it up on part two of, of the elk hunting. This is a little bit different. This is kind of what I go through during my seminars a little bit, uh, semi you know we've reduced it a little bit so it can it can fit in the confines of a podcast but that is really my strategy it's really really simple like I, people want to overcomplicate it they want to make it so you have to read books and books on how to do this and and I honestly keep it very very simple we run the same thing over and over the progressions and uh I, I think you, you go out there put some of this to use and, and be confident in your approach be confident in your calling Um, You're going to find some success this year. So thanks a lot. Listen to part two of elk hunting. Good luck to everybody out there. And uh, once again, you have questions for us. Feel free to email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com. Thank you very much for listening.
Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. 